All right, well, we're back in our study of the book of Romans. We're in lesson chapter, I'm sorry, we're in uh, lesson 21 uh, on sanctification, the fifth part about sanctification within that section of the book. And more explicitly, we're in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, an introduction to our marital union with Christ. Well, let me start at the whiteboard and give the big picture here. Paul is going to use the illustration of a wife in chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. And the marriage, what Paul is going to share with us in chapter 7 follows chapter 6. So there are two illustrations that Paul has been giving, and we don't want to lose the illustration. In chapter 6, Paul was telling us that we had formerly been in a relationship with a bad master in a bad relationship, which led to a really bad life. That is, we used to be under the dominion of sin, the old man. But Christ has broken that dominion and has now freed us so that we are under his dominion and we are under his lordship. But the second one is, and this is more complex for most Christians, chapter 7 tells us that we were, we were in a, we had a good husband, but it was still a bad marriage. The law and sin are two relationships that Paul wants us to understand. That's why he says in chapter 6, verse 19, the reason I'm doing this and telling you in human language is so you can understand through an illustration what I'm trying to say. And what is he trying to say? Because we have a problem of our sin. We were never a good spouse to the law. And he's using the illustration in both of these cases that this is it. I used to be in a relationship or in a marriage to sin. And it led to, here's the picture on page one. My relationship led to sin condemnation, and death. I used to be in a bad relationship, is what he's trying to say. And I gave myself to it fully. And they had control over me. It was abusive. The flesh, or the old man, had me. Romans chapter 3. I did everything it wanted to do, but I gladly did it. Paul's point in Romans 6 is, I gave myself like a slave to it, and it was demanding of me, and it had power over me. And in that relationship, Paul doesn't call it a marriage in chapter 6, but in that union I had with my, actually not my flesh, but the old man, I was under its dominion and sway. It controlled me. And it led to three results that I've painted here. It led to sin. It invited me all the time to do bad things. The husband was like, hey... Do evil with me. And what did I do? Let's do that. Number two, it ruined my life. It led to running into the law. It led to condemnation in the relationship that I had under this terrible abusive situation. I ran with it, and it led me into the consequences of that. And then finally, it leads to death. All sin leads to death. It leads to physical death, but the death of relationships, separation from God, separation from what everything. And so Paul paints in chapter 6, what if you were married to someone terrible and you were in that system and you gave yourself to that system and then that person died? What will it take to move on? That's Paul's illustration. You used to be in that, but you're no longer in that. Now you're married to Christ, but we have the memories of our old marriage, the pattern. We used to go to those special places and do evil things. We even had some good times together. Doing some sin together. And so Paul recognizes that the residual effect of a marriage or relationship that's gone is still that the flesh is there, which is the residual memories, patterns, experiences, and desires of the old way. I'm still functioning as if that was the case. So we had a bad master and a bad life that came out of it. So let me read the, the verses in the middle of page one, see if I can explain this a little more fully. So Paul ended chapter one this way, and then we'll get on to chapter seven. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. 
doesn't mean you were free of your obligation. It means we were free in our experience. We never did it. Verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? Paul's point, remember, his longer point is, why go back to the flesh? And so he's saying, was that really working for you? Yes, the Dr. Phil question is what he's asking. How was that working for you? Right? Verse 21. Um, so therefore, what benefit were you then deriving in that bad relationship from the things of which you are now ashamed of? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, a new relationship. And you derive your benefit now currently resulting in sanctification. And the outcome after your sanctification and you die will be eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I just drew that, uh, didn't draw, I created this little picture down at the bottom to just make that in, in picture form that our master used to be sin, so we were enslaved to sin, but because of the cross work of Christ, we are now enslaved to God, which will lead eventually through sanctification and eternal life. And if simply said, the benefit package used to be sin and death under, our, under the relationship to sin, but the benefit package, it says, what benefit do you derive now in this new job, this new relationship? Well, tremendous benefits, and that is sanctification and eternal life. Okay? Starter kit. So that's where we've been. Woo! More stuff. More stuff. All right, so here's where we are. Paul's, we're finishing up chapter 6. We're in a bad relationship. Don't go back there. That's Paul's point. Top of page 2. Let's remember where we are in the big picture, and that is Paul has called us in the book of Romans to understand our salvation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. What is Paul picking up on salvation? Three things. Don't get lost in where we are. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Paul in chapters 3 to 5 that we went through talked about justification from the penalty of sin and it was done for us. God justified us in Christ. We didn't earn it. We didn't do something for it. We just simply believed that it was the case. And as Grudem says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. But then, now we're in that section on sanctification in which Paul is talking about, look, you're a Christian, so I need to explain to you how this new relationship works. And guys, here's what I'd say. Uh, next week, my whole talk is called, It's Complicated. That's my whole talk in Romans 7 next week. We're going to try to finish Romans 7 next week. And the complication comes in Paul's later part in Romans 7 where he says, you know the things I want to do, I don't do them, and the things I don't want to do, I do, and... Is he talking as a Christian there? Is he talking as an unbeliever? Is he talking about a, a law, a Pharisee under the law? We're going to talk about all that. But the point is, our relationship now as a Christian is complicated with the law. It's somewhat complicated with the flesh, but we kind of know where the boundaries are. But it's complicated in the law, and Paul's going to get into this, because the law is far more appealing to go back to. Because it was a good husband. And I have good memories of them being moral and good. But the secret message within all of this is that Paul is going to tell us it's adulterous to go back to the, the flesh and the sin. And you're like, yeah. And he's also going to tell you it's adulterous to go back to the law. If you're a Christian and you go back to the law, it's adultery. To have a relationship, an attempt to have your relationship through an old covenant an old marriage covenant that is now broken is adultery. But I, they were special to me. They were a good person. They, I have some fond memories. They never did anything wrong. They were a good husband to me. And Paul says, it's adultery. And Christ is better. And the law was only a good husband morally. It was a terrible husband in terms of helping you. The law never helped you around the house. The law only told you to clean the house. The law never went out on special occasions with you. It just told you why you were sinning. The law was perfect. And it was a horrible husband 
Not because it's bad, but because we're bad. The relationship was bad. The husband was good. That's Paul's point in Romans 7. Is the law sin? He's going to ask next week's point. No. Great husband. Perfect husband. You can't. This guy never did anything wrong. Massively OCD, by the way. Oh, well, you got to bring a pigeon with a second thing, and you're like, can we just go in the car and go to church? The law never was into you. The law never loved you. Your husband never loved you if you're under the law. And Christ is saying to you, I love you. It's a relationship. And the law is no longer your husband. Come to me. And I will take those burdens. Take upon me. My way is easy. And the brokenness, he broke the yoke of the law. And of a husband, you could never, ever, ever, ever please. And so sanctification is what he's talking about here. As a Christian, it's a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. Sanctification is God breaking the power of sin during this part of our life. So it no longer has dominion on a daily basis. And then, of course, glorification is from the presence of sin. It will be done to us. We won't have to do anything for glorification. We don't go, sign up for glorification, or what do we have to do in the Bible? You have to die. Okay, or get raptured. One of the two, right? There's only two ways out, right? Die or get raptured. And God's going to give you a new body, and you'll be in glory. And then all of this relational talk will be very clear that we are married to Christ, and there is nothing in the way of that. Okay, that's all by way of introduction. Welcome back. Now let's dive into Paul's argument in chapter 7 on that line, and that is in the middle of page 2. Romans 7, our marriage to the law versus our marriage to Christ. As I've indicated on the board and here, you'll note that the law has a halo. Such a good husband. And our hair over here looks like we haven't showered in a couple of months. Yes. Good husband. Bad marriage. Here's the irony. Same results. See, when you're, when you're married to the flesh or the, the evil, sinful nature, sin, that's what's rampant. Condemnation under God's word. You do all the wrong things. And it leads to death because you're all in on evil. But the law leads you to the same results but it doesn't cause it. In the first case, the bondage you're under, under the depravity of your flesh, is causal and works with your own desires to cause that. The law never tells you to sin. But because it is so perfect and is so good, and because we love sin, we rebel against the law, and we end up doing the three things that we did under the other marriage. First of all, we desire the things the law tells us to do. Paul said, I would have never known about coveting if it didn't tell me to not covet. But it says, but then the commandment deceived me. It's like the ring of power. But the commandment deceived me and caused in me all kinds of coveting. Because it's basically this. It's a simple, you've heard the illustration a million times, but it's really true. There's a sign up that says, don't walk on the grass. Walking on the grass. That's the way our sinful nature runs. And what the law did for us was it told us what not to do. And we were convinced I'd be okay doing that because we're in rebellion against God, which ramped up our sinful desires. Let me use the illustration of a marriage. It's a loveless marriage with a perfect person who never gives you a break. You might feel the excuse. There is no excuse in sin. The excuse, I want to go find love in these other wonderful things. And so you run from its perfection. There are many ways in which the law was a mirror and we didn't like it. It was also the thing that caused in us coveting, not by its nature, but by its perfection. And in so many sinful ways, our reaction to the law, we feel justified in doing what we should. And so it ends up, we sin more, and we end up in condemnation. Why? Because the law is perfect, and everything we do will be demonstrated to be imperfect. Which leads to death. The wages of sin is death. So neither of them is a good marriage for us. Nobody gets saved by the law. Nobody at the end has a happy ending under the law. Right? 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so I just remind you at the bottom one more time, and then we'll, we'll take a deeper dive. What are we talking about in big picture? A union with Christ in chapter 6 to 8. The judicial union at the beginning of chapter 6 is God has now made you his by justification and you're united with Christ. Then he talked about moral union. Give yourself over to slavery to him and do righteousness, a union in which you are doing right. Thirdly, where we are, marital union in chapter 8, spiritual union with the Holy Spirit in which we're in union with him and which he causes in us the ability to have a marriage with Christ that is exalting to God. And it will end with eternal union, glorification. And now you're with Christ forever in the happy union, and there's no more bad stuff. Okay? All right. Given that I have 13 pages here, I just got through two, man. I'm feeling pretty good about myself today. All right. Let me introduce you to the first six verses of Romans with little headings I've given it. And then we're going to dig into the main point. What does it mean that we are no longer married to the law? Number one, we were married to the law for life. Or do you not know, Paul says, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. Let me stop. Paul had already addressed Gentiles and Jews, right, in chapters 1 and 2. He'd made a distinction. Hey, pagans, you know, you're without excuse. Chapter 2 was all about if you're Jewish in the audience and you're saved and you're sitting out there, you recognize, or you're an unsaved Jew in chapter 2, you recognize that these things are true of you, that you're, you're holding to the law, etc. He comes back now, essentially, I think here, in chapter 7, to address the reality that anyone in the audience, whether a Gentile who thinks they should be under the law, or a Jewish believer, or confessing believer who's Jewish, would hear this and they would say, good, I'm no longer under this marriage to this bad, evil person. Now I can really get into the law. I was once on a mission trip, in Brooklyn, I think I've mentioned it before, I took a team of people from California to Brooklyn to do 11 days of street witnessing in Brooklyn. And, uh, of course, in Brooklyn, there's many uh, Jewish uh, people. And so uh, we did a lot of street witnessing, and there were a lot of people who hated us. It was really interesting. But, uh, but no, because we're presenting Christ. But in it, I was with... My problem was not the Jewish people I was witnessing to. It was the Gentiles who had decided to come along and wear the little stuff. And the little tassels and the hats and the little special stuff. Who were from Messianic congregations who in so many ways, not every individual, but so many of the talks I had with them sounded something like this. I'd say, so what was the purpose of the law? And what was the purpose of Christ's atonement? Christ died for us to make us right with God by our being now empowered to obey the law. You go, no, no. This is the sort of Jews for Jesus and chosen people and those kind of, We were with chosen people on this occasion. And what the whole 11 days was for me was a reorientation of the book of Galatians, where almost every conversation with the leaders of the ministry and with the people who were there was this sold out to reproducing the festivals and the experiences of the Old Testament um, in a way in which it wasn't simply symbolic, because the Old Testament symbols are there, but it was a reorientation to their Christian faith under the law, in which they thought, God has now made us more specially in love with the law. That is the lie of the book of Galatians on both salvation and sanctification. The lie is that we are now made able to obey the law so we should be in relationship with the law. Paul's point in Romans chapter 7 is incredibly important. We are not supposed to go back to the law as a standard by which, no, let me say it a different way, a covenant under which you are in. It is not the motivating factor for Christian holiness. Nor is the law going to help you be holy because if it would be helping you be holy, you would be under the law. But you're not. It's not for that purpose. The law is there to tell people they're sinners. It is not to help you be sanctified. It does not give you any help. Only Christ and a relationship and a marriage with Him. The marriage with Christ is totally different on a totally different basis. It's a new covenant. You made new vows. This, the marriage vows over here are not the ones over here. The fidelity is the same. I'm under the new covenant. I was under the Old Covenant. After that, there's a lot of stuff. 
I promise to keep all the rules. Never do this. Be on a Saturday. Do all this stuff. That is not what Christ has asked you to do. That's a different marriage. That's not even the same relationship in any way, shape, or form. And Christians are attempting to go back under a marriage covenant that the husband got rid of. And so this is the importance of Romans chapter 7. So back to verse 1. For do you not, or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Yes. Amen. If you're alive and you're under the covenant, you must obey. Verse 2. The only way for a wife to be free from the marriage covenant is the death of her husband, according to Paul, and the law. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, whoopee, she is released from the law concerning the husband. <laughs> Some of you are like, amen. <laughs> you should repent later when you go home. Okay, that's just a... So that's Paul's point. You know the law and you know the principle, because he's given an illustration, but you need to know the law so the illustration makes sense. And that is, again, for the woman is bound by law to her husband while, she, while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, Paul's point, what happens? She shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Paul's making a very clear point, right? Through this illustration, it's very simple. Uh, the law, so he's got the people in this play. Who's the husband in this? It's the law. Who's the wife? It's us. It's the person. Now, you might ask, is he talking about the Christian? Is he talking about, well, he is, but... The point of the wife person is, it's the person you always are in every one of the circumstances. That is, this person has been freed from the law. The law died to you, your husband. You, that person, are now free from the law. Where does he go with this? Uh, well, verse 4. We are no longer married to the law. We are now married to Christ. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Fruit for God is equivalent to sanctification. So big picture, we're back to, you were justified, and you've been made free now. The law is no longer your husband. You're now in this new relationship where you can bear sanctification fruit. The fruit of this marriage should come out. Number four, the results of our former marriage were, as we said before, the same as being under sin. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. That was the point. They can't tell me what to do. I'm the captain of my own soul. But while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, that is unsaved, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Sin and death was the result of being under the law. Bad marriage, great husband. But we married the wrong guy. If you go all the way back, just historically the moment, uh, God offered the law to Israel as a relationship. And he it's a suzerainty treaty from the ancient Near East culture, blah blah blah. But the point is he offers them he offers them this covenant relationship. It's not like they should have turned it down. This is not going to be my theological point. But the point is in that moment, it was just like at the end of the book of Joshua, when God's like, hey, we want you to do this, and the people are like, we will do it. You remember the incident with the law? Give it to us, man. We're all in. I can do that whole thing. I'm a great spouse. And then in the, in the book of Joshua, there's a similar conversation about going into the land and obeying the Lord. It's like, we're all in. We can do this. It's like, no, you won't. Joshua says you won't do this. Right? Guys, that's us, right? We already know that. We're not, a faith, we're not going to be a faithful spouse to anything God throws at us. 
whether the law or even under grace. We do not do everything we should do. Romans chapter 7 is the deep look on two things. Why this relational thing needs to be understood. And then the rest of the chapter is Paul's anatomy of what's going on inside of me. What in the world? It's complicated. And Paul is going to use like nine different ways to explain in the rest of the chapter what's going on inside of me. The law of sin and death. The law of my mind. The flesh. The spirit. He's got all those. He's going to like, we have to understand the anthropology of sanctification to understand what's going on inside of us. So. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Is the, is the marriage example literal? Oh, um, let me see if I can explain it if I'm not hitting your question. Paul's using the illustration of how a marriage works. Right. I get that. Right. In order to show us how our relationship with Christ works. Right. You're good with that? Okay. So what, what am I missing? Because you have a good question. Here, her question, it is literally, the application of the law is what she's on. Is like, is it literally true that if we, we got divorced and got remarried, are we adulterers? Without our husband dying. Right? Well, that is what the law said. That, there's no doubt. That's, that is what the law said, and that's what Jesus said. He, he said the same thing in the New Testament. That if, if you remarry uh, and your spouse is alive, uh, you are an adulterer, whether it's the husband or the wife. Now, are those the only verses in the Bible about that? No, they're not. Um, and so here's what I'd say, because it's not a seminar on that. But I want to I be clear. Your question is really great because it makes me feel like when Paul stood before the Sanhedrin or whatever it was, and he tried to divide the room because there were some who believed in the resurrection and some who didn't, and he said, I'm here for the defense of the resurrection, and people just started arguing, right? Uh, I could say a few things in here and get everybody... There are people in this room who are married and never been divorced. There's people in this room who are divorced and have been remarried. There's people in this room who have been divorced and have never been remarried. And then there's people in this room who are single and are like, I'm never getting married now. Our church doctrinal statement uh, upholds two exception clauses to this, and that is in the case of unrepentant uh, adultery on the case of a spouse, that you're freed from that marriage and allowed to remarry. And an unbeliever who leaves a believer and never comes back and is unwilling to live in their covenant in both of those cases, according to our doctrinal statement, which agrees with a lot of evangelicals, but it doesn't agree with everyone. But those two exception clauses are what's accepted by the elders at this church. So, does that make sense? Okay, good. Yes, ma'am. All right, um, and then point five in the middle of page three. The promise of a better marriage is really the point. But now, we have been released from the law. Woohoo! Having died to that by which we were bound. So that we serve in the newness of the spirit. And not in the oldness of the letter. If Paul had ended there by simply saying. Hey we're no longer under the law. In this formal contract. But he wanted to make sure that you wanted to go back to the law as a friend and really make it your special contact, he wouldn't have said the very last thing he said because he contrasts worship in the spirit under worship under the code. He's making it clear that what you are outside of is the code of the law as your master, your husband, and your means of which by you determine that which you are supposed to actually do in knowing Christ. It is not in the oldness of the letter. You don't have a new relationship, new wine in an old wineskin. You don't have a new relationship and a new marriage with Christ through the law. He's better than the law. The whole book of Hebrews is about this. Christ is better than the law. It's personal now. You don't have to go through another priest. You don't have to go through a, a sacramental system. You don't have to go through special rites. You don't have to go through special days and festivals, new moon festivals and special Sabbaths and whatever. Those are all manifestations and symptoms and pictures and shadows of a covenant that no longer exist in terms of your relationship to it. Now, is there a proper use of the law? We'll talk about that. But that's usually the jump of people pretty quick. I was comfortable knowing that even though my husband didn't love me, 
they at least told me what I should be doing every day. It was clear. Now it's really fuzzy in this new relationship because I can't tell what the rules are. This happens to be about the heart. Don't want any of that. Relationships that are run by rules aren't cool. Got to have some boundaries. And there are New Testament boundaries. It's called the royal law of Christ. There's a law in the, old, in the New Testament. You're like, oh, I thought it was outside the law. What is the royal law of Christ in the New Testament? Love God and love your neighbor. And thus you have fulfilled the law. Well, that's pretty loose, man. So what Paul has done now is, chapter 6, he came in and said, I know everybody's going to accuse me of a soft gospel because it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, without works. And you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to give. You don't. Okay, he knows that, and then he had dealt with that. But now he's dealing with those who think the law is primary and what we should be doing is the law. And Paul's now in the same dilemma. Um, listen, uh, he's going to sound like a lawbreaker, and that's in the book of Acts. You have a number of people accuse him of hating the Mosaic law. Right? Paul's in a number of times when he goes to Jerusalem and stuff, people are like, he's a law hater. And Paul's like, no, I don't hate the law, it's been fulfilled. I love the law. The law was good and righteous and, and holy. The law was very special, but it's no longer my husband. And Paul fought Peter on this very basis in the book of Galatians. Uh, Peter got free from the law, hanging out, eating ribs with Gentiles in Antioch, right? <laughs> Pretty much. It said, and he ate with the Gentiles. The, the presumption is he's eating the food of the Gentiles. He's hanging with Gentiles. They're all in this together. He'd already had the big picture, you know. Hey, don't, you know, you can eat any of the stuff in the sheet. Don't say it's bad. So all this stuff's happening. Peter goes to the rib fest in Antioch. And some guys come up from Jerusalem, from James's church. And they're of this ilk. Yeah, you can love Jesus, but you better keep the law. Because that's why he set you free. And Peter went for it. Because he was a people pleaser in this case. And he's like, oh man, I'm Gentiles? I'm, no, I'm not free like that. I mean, I'm all about the law. And Paul rebuked him to his face. And said, you couldn't keep the law. And it was never good for you. And now you're a hypocrite because you're trying to put these Gentiles under the law. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom to do what? To be righteous. Not to, not to be slaves to sin. But we're not motivated and we are not as a legal code to have the old covenant pressed on us but the new covenant obligations which many of them are reflected back to the old covenant. Alright. Long way of introduction. <sighs> Page three. Are Christians under the law today? Thus begins a ten-page excursus. Let me tell you again why there's ten pages there. Imagine it as this. Because I know as a pastor and a brother in the Lord, the difficulty that this complicates, what is my relationship to the law? And I, I just want to begin to help anyone in the room who is still not there, who is not free, and needs to become free. Not free to do what you want. Free to have a marriage with Jesus Christ that is based on a relationship where there's not a lot of rules and it's a little messy, but it's ridiculously awesome. Right? And once you get that in a marriage, and you look around at other people who are just trying to piece it together and tape it together with rules, you're like, I want them to have what I have. I want them to have... I want them to have that joy, an amazing relationship. And that's what Paul is doing for us here. And so, these next number of pages are arguments for two things. To truly believe that what it means is you're actually not under the law, and you're actually in Christ's relationship. And to some degree, what does that really look like? Building the argument for next week, where we deep dive into Paul's points on what's going on inside of me, why do I feel like I'm under the law? And why, how does the law, you know, all that stuff. All right, page three, let's move on. Do Christians have to obey the Old Testament law? Number one, the key to understanding this issue is knowing that the Old Testament law was given to the nation of Israel. 
and not to Christians. A. Some of the laws were to reveal the Israelites how to obey and please God. The Ten Commandments, for example. B. Some of the laws were to show the Israelites how to worship God and atone for the sins, the sacrificial system. And some of the laws were intended to make the Israelites distinct from other nations. The food and clothing rules. None of the Old Testament law is binding on Christians today. Again, some people call this moral, civil, and ceremonial laws, right? As distinctions. That is, the moral law is like the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments, we all know this. We know that the Ten Commandments, nine of them, are commandments still in the New Testament. Only one of them is not a commandment given to the New Covenant Church. What is it? The Sabbath. Exactly. It's the Sabbath. We're not commanded in the New Covenant to, to hold to the Sabbath. But the other nine are reiterated. Don't have idols. Worship God. Don't commit adultery. Those, are all, those moral laws have never ceased. But the code under which they were, under that nation and code we were under, and our obligation to the way it was managed is gone. And secondly, the civil and the ceremonial laws we were outside of. You go, well, that's okay. I, I can wear wool with this, or I don't have to bring a pigeon. But many Christians are still, in their hearts, obligated to principles from that, which they say, well, if God said that's the right dietary things, then I'm going to buy Ezekiel bread. I mean, God knew how to eat. and Or don't eat pork, or whatever the deal is. We were at one church, uh, as church planters, and really lovely couple. We were talking, and we invited them over for dinner one night. And uh, I don't remember what, how we got to the conversation, but it was a conversation about food. Well, I guess we're having dinner. And it was a conversation about what you were allowed to eat as a Christian. And I thought they were kidding at first. They were like, man, you, you can't. It wasn't about pork. It was just like several things. And I was like, you know, don't mix milk with whatever kind of thing. And I was like, are you kidding? And they're, and they're like, no, totally. And their argument was, God is perfect. God gave a dietary law. It must be the absolute perfect dietary law ever given. Could not be better than that law. And God's best food-eating plan was given in the Old Testament. Thus, to not eat like that is unwise and ungodly, and probably against God's law under the New Covenant, because it still continues. You're like, you want some more pork? Yeah. Got some more bacon there, if you need, need that. It's real. No, they weren't. They were evangelical Christians who believed that uh, the principle is, if it's in the Word of God, and God gave it, it must be the absolutely best, and always obligatory, or we are always obligated to do it. And that misses two things, right, Alan? Progressive revelation, and the different covenants. Right? Right, Anne, when you teach it? Progressive revelation. Adam didn't have a Bible. Abraham didn't have a Bible. I've got a Bible. We have different information given to us, and it's the marriage looks different based on the information. All right, bottom of page three. When Jesus died on the cross, he put an end to the Old Testament law. In the place of the Old Testament law, we are under the law of Christ, which is to love your God with all your heart and your soul with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If we obey these two commands, we will be fulfilling all that Christ requires of us. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I'm reminded in, in Galatians as we turn. I'm reminded in Galatians 5 when it says to be filled with the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. But what I love is what comes right after it. It says, against such there is no law. In other words, dude, if you just act like a person filled with the Holy Spirit, not act like, if the Spirit is causing that fruit in you, it's causal by the Spirit, but if those fruits come out, you are living under God's law. That's what it looks like in the New Covenant. It looks like Spirit fruit. It doesn't look like obligations to specific external activities. Beautiful, beautiful. You know, that is a beautiful point. Yesterday at men's breakfast, Doug Baldridge made a great point on that in that passage. And he said, we were in, we were in that passage, and he said, the command in the passage is to walk in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what he does. We don't cause fruit. And he talked about not putting a banana and taping it onto yourself, trying to create fruit, right? But the fruit comes because you're regenerated. It's a birthright 
of being a Christian that those fruits will be produced. Different sizes, different shape, as he severally wills, because grace is given in measures, right? God doesn't give everybody the same fruit at the same size, you know? I mean, everybody can't be as holy as me, okay? I mean, that's just, that's not possible. In other words, there's no such thing of unfruit If you're regenerated, there will be fruit. How much, in what season, Psalm chapter 1, that those fruits will grow in their season? John chapter 15, he'll prune us. There'll be seasons where you look like you don't have any fruit. And that's why it's dangerous to have the root or the foundation of your assurance be the manifestation of your fruit. Unless you understand the whole picture. It's in seasons. But there are seasons of manifest what in the world and God is just pruning us back because we know the growth is going to come in the spring, right? But if you over a life, you know, if there's a long series of there's no fruit, there's probably, there's probably no root. Probably. But we always have to, you know, you always have to be careful not to dig, well, I didn't see that fruit. You're like, okay, calm it back. You know, take it back here. So, John, what were you going to say? That's right. I mean, you guys got me on all kinds of Bible verses today. But, you know, I think when you said, yeah, there's fruit. There's no question on fruit. The, when you said there's some things you see small in your life, and I thought of the Old Testament passage where it's Elijah and they're waiting for rain, and he saw a cloud way out there, and he says, I saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. And it's just like, I'll take it, you know? So I'll take it. Yes, sir. It's a good question. Um, what I would say is that it's just the word replace that we'd have to define. Certainly, we have communion and we no longer have the Passover. The, re- the question is always the relationship between those two, and that is, here's what I would disagree with, that communion is the Christian Passover. But rather, communion is a new covenant ordinance given to us, distinct from Passover, and Passover is a picture and a, sim- and a symbol and a shadow of things which would come, but has no organic relationship to that event. Just like baptism is not related to circumcision, and just like the Sabbath is not the Lord's day. The Sabbath was under an old covenant, it had Saturday, it had regulations and requirements, but we are not under the Christian Sabbath, we're under the Lord's day, of a day of celebration and worship, that has no regulations regarding that. So you see what I'm saying? They have they have picture relationship, but they have no organic relationship. They're totally different covenants. So... Alright. Yes, ma'am. Paige, good questions. I'm just making this stuff up. So alright, top of page four. Now, this does not mean the Old Testament is irrelevant today. Some of you are like, yeah, oh praise God, I can keep my Old Testament. Alright. Many of the commands in the Old Testament law fall into the categories of loving God and loving your neighbor. We can learn much from the Old Testament how to love God and love our neighbor. B, the Old Testament law can be a good guidepost for knowing how to love God and knowing what goes into loving your neighbor. And C, at the same time, to say that the Old Testament law applies to Christians today is incorrect. Let me explain. The Old Testament law is a unit, as I just suggested. Either all of it applies or none of it applies according to the New Testament. If Christ fulfilled some of it, such as the sacrificial system, he fulfilled all of it. This is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. The Ten Commandments were essentially a summary of the entire Old Testament law. Nine of those Ten Commandments are clearly repeated in the New Testament, all except the command to obey the Sabbath. Obviously, if we're looking, uh, loving God, we will not be worshiping false gods or bowing down before idols. If we are loving our neighbors, we will not be murdering them, lying to them, <laughs> committing adultery against them, or coveting. Do you see how that's related? It's not that it's an amorphous love. Love your neighbor. It has very specific sense to what that is. The New Testament goes back and says, don't kill them, don't commit adultery. Okay, those things. The third point. The purpose of the Old Testament law is to convict people of their inability to keep the law and point them to their need for Jesus Christ as Savior. That's the purpose of the law in terms of under the New Covenant relationship. The Old Covenant or the Old Testament law was never intended by God to be the universal law for all people for all time. We are to love God, love our neighbors. If we obey those two commands faithfully, we will be upholding all that God requires of us. Yes, the new covenant explains how to love God and love your neighbor. 
So what was the meaning and importance of the Jerusalem Council? Let me stop there. That may be all the content we can possibly download today. And that is, if you remember the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, let me explain. Some of you are all in. In very quick fashion, after Paul was saved, he began his numerous works and went on his mission trips, and Gentiles started getting saved. And Paul's preaching grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, but he keeps running into people who are like Judaizers, is what we call them, and that, yes, you can believe in Jesus, but you've got to keep the law, or you have to believe in Jesus by keeping the law and Jesus. There were manifestations of both. Both justification was wrongly taught and sanctification. So the Jerusalem Council's question is simply, uh, council may be the wrong word, but uh, they, they came to Jerusalem to the church there. The apostles came, and the question was, do the Gentiles have to obey the law to be saved, and do the Gentiles have to obey the law to be sanctified? And that was the debate? No, Peter and the boys got up and said, no. Right? Peter himself said, we never kept it. I don't know how they're going to keep it. It wasn't ever for that. Amen. And so we have this wonderful... So let's talk a little bit about it. Some things about that council, because it could be misunderstood. First, in the first few years after the Christian church, the church was comprised predominantly of Jews. Secondly, in Acts chapter 8, the gospel spread to the Samaritans, who were ethnically mixed Jews and Gentiles, and many Samaritans received Jesus Christ as Savior. In Acts chapter 10.3, the Apostle Peter was the first to take the gospel specifically to the Gentiles, and many received Christ as Savior. Four, in Acts chapters 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas had a very fruitful ministry among the Gentiles. Five, the issue centered on two questions. Do Gentiles first have to become Jews before they can become Christians? That is, be circumcised, obey the law, be baptized under Judaism, etc. Or do Gentiles have to observe the Mosaic law after they become Christians? According to people that I met in chosen ministries or chosen, what's it called? Chosen people? Yeah, they like this stuff. Number six, the impetus for the Jerusalem Council is given in Acts 15, verses 1 to 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. Saved by grace in order to keep the law or saved through the law. Number seven. Some Jewish Christians were teaching that Gentiles had to observe the Mosaic law and Jewish customs in order to be saved. Since this teaching clearly contradicts the fact that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, the apostles and church leaders held the first Christian council to settle the issue. B. In verses 7-11, the apostle Peter, I know I'm going fast, spoke of his ministry with the Gentiles as recorded in Acts chapter 10. Peter focused on the fact that the Holy Spirit was given to uncircumcised Gentiles. In precisely the same manner, the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles and Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost. This led Peter to the conclusion that there should be no placing a yoke on the neck of the Gentiles, disciples that neither our fathers nor we were ever able to bear. It's pretty concise. My sister-in-law is Jewish. I've said that in here three or four times. She's always a good example. She's a believer in the Lord. She loves this stuff that we're talking about today. And so many Jewish Messianic people have tried to convince her that she should practice a more Judaized or a more Jewish form of her Christian faith. And she's like, the New Testament calls them elders. They're not rabbis. And she will go verse by verse to the New Testament and says, you are putting me under a yoke of bondage, to which none of us was ever able to do. Because the Gentiles who didn't know this are like, we're enamored with the cool stuff from the Old Testament. And she's like, it's not in there. It's in Christ. We're all in Christ. The, the shadow is gone. There's no reason to go back to the shadow. Okay. See, Jesus' half-brother James, who had become a leader of the church in Jerusalem, agreed with Peter and said, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Indeed, the Jerusalem Council then proceeded to give four principles that Gentile Christians should live by. They were not rules the Gentiles must follow in order to be saved. Rather, they were rules about building harmony between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Let me explain. If you, you get that. The church is predominantly Jewish at the beginning. But by the time Paul now has been on the mission field, Gentiles are popping up all over the place in Gentile churches. You have a problem. Jerusalem itself has Gentiles, and they were getting saved. And there were churches that were different kinds of believing churches in that first century in Jerusalem itself. Those who were more 
hey, we came out of the law, and those who are a little more of the Septuagint version, but anyway, but the point is, people were said, yeah, we're kind of free from that. And this is all going on, and so the requirements, quote-unquote, that were given by the Jerusalem Council were this. We are suggesting to, Jew, to Gentile believers that in order to live in harmony with Jewish believers, to not flaunt your liberty. It's really Paul's points on liberty in Romans 13 or uh, 14. And it's like, leave here and we're asking, if you're a Gentile, dial it back a little bit. Don't bring the ribs to church. Right? Don't Don't stop by Mission Barbecue on the way to church. Just go with it. All right? Here, E, the four rules the Jerusalem Council decided were upon were that Gentiles, looks like six, the Gentile Christians should abstain from food polluted by idols. Now, you understand that these suggestions that were given by that council to Gentile believers, Paul told in other books that they didn't have to do it. Was he against the council? The council was making suggestions about harmony to which Paul is making theological points about our relationship to Christ. For example, he says, if you go to a party with pagans and they put food in front of you and it was sacrificed to idols, can you eat it? What does Paul say? If for, right. But, but even if you know that it is. Paul says, even if you know that it's sacrificed to idols, are you free to eat it? And he says, If your conscience is good with it, have it. Because he says, there's no demon in there. There's no, you know, there's no God inside the the sacrifice. So Paul's theological point is always, get over it. But don't flaunt your liberty. Because there's people, right? The weaker brother. And secondly, and that's the biggest point, weaker brothers are almost always the people, you know, A weaker brother becomes a Pharisee when they judge you for your freedom. A true weaker brother is somebody who says, I I struggle in conscience with that. I used to be a Led Zeppelin fan. And so now that you're playing Led Zeppelin in your car, I feel kind of weird about that because I used to do drugs to Led Zeppelin. Right? Or even worse. I used to be a Raiders fan. Right? Right? So the weaker brother will always say, I'm struggling with that. Help me out. The Pharisee always says, you can't do that. God does not allow that. But they don't have a law for it. So the point of all this is, the suggestions were given, but Paul on several of these occasions says, that is not a law from God. That's a suggestion from the apostles to help harmony happen in the first century. You are free to not do it. But do not flaunt your liberty. Okay, back to it. Sexual immorality. Well, you go, wait a minute. So this is, are they, they were told, don't, don't do sexual immorality. I don't have an hour. The terms that they're using in Acts 15 are the same as don't have bestiality or don't have a relationship with a near relative. It's a kind of term where they're being told, don't do weird stuff, okay? Don't marry your near cousin. Because the Old Testament, it was now forbidden. Before the law, it wasn't. Okay? Adam and Eve had kids, right? They could marry their brothers and sisters. It's weird, but that's the way it was before the gene pool was divided between the good and the raiders. Okay? And so... I'm just going to go on. Don't eat the meat of strangled animals and blood. Now, I've talked to people who've said to me, Okay, so it's basically don't eat eat meat while the blood is running in it, right? That's an Old Testament law. You can't do that. I've had believers talk to me and say that they follow that scripture because it was in the Jerusalem Council, and we shouldn't eat meat as Christians, in which the blood is still in it and stuff. But then I start really questioning. I, I remember one guy in my last church, and I was questioning him, and I really found out he did. I was like, so when you go to the thing, do you eat a hamburger? Do you have any, you know, he's like, well, I like a medium rare. (laughs) And finally, the instructions were not intended to guarantee salvation, but to promote peace within the early church. F, at the bottom of page five, 
It is interesting that the issue of the Jerusalem Council was dealing with is still very much an issue in the church today. There are groups still teaching that Christians must obey the Old Testament law, whether it's the Sabbath day or the food laws or all of the Old Testament law outside of the sacrificial system. There are groups that declare an observance of the law is either required for salvation or at least a crucially important aspect of the Christian life. I'm going to stop, not stop for the day, but I'm going to stop in my notes and take you to the back of my notes for my last point, okay? And it is on page 12 today. Page 14, brother. These are a lot of notes. The, the church is having to um, deal with the financial crisis now after I've printed all these notes. All right, to finish today, here's where I'm at. So you see where we're going. We're looking at that. What's the relationship of us to law? What are the theological ramifications? I want to end with a test case uh, there in the middle of page or at the top of page 12. And that is, do we have a Christian Sabbath today? Uh, to our gentleman's question, not to that specifically, but my answer, how does the Sabbath relate to the Lord's Day? And I say that because there are good and godly Christians who believe that we are under a Christian Sabbath. Uh, it's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's in the Second London Confession, for example. But they promote the idea of what I call, or what theologians call, Sabbatarianism. And let me explain. If, and you're like, I got that, but let me, let me just, in case you're new to that. And that is, Christians, the te- it is the erroneous teaching that Christians today must use Sunday as the Christian Sabbath, and therefore the restrictions of the Sabbath in principle and in some form are to be obeyed by Christians today in order to use the Lord's Day properly. That is, places you can go, things you can do, you should dial back from work, you should never work on Sunday, according to Sabbatarian teaching. That is an application wrongly done from a covenant to another covenant. No, Karen, seriously, I was going to... You don't have to work on Sunday. She got free, ladies and gentlemen. She's like, I'm going to work. (laughs) Bye, Karen. If you don't know, Karen works here. Yes. She's awesome. Okay. So that is the point. And here's what I've done on page 12 and 13. I'm going to read it, make some comment, we'll be done. And that is page 12 and 13 is an excerpt I found on the internet a number of years ago when I was addressing Sabbatarian things. And it's the document from a church that believes in the Second London Confession of Faith. Their pastors and elders teach out of a document that teaches Sabbatarianism. All the other part of the document, they were good with. But they themselves distanced themselves from the error of Sabbatarianism, and here's how. And this one is real because many of you know people who feel that Sunday is a Sabbath. Here's what they said being in that context. (laughs) We, the elders of Flint Reformed Baptist Church, are prayerfully searching of the scriptures and discussion conclude the following three affirmations and denials concerning the doctrine of the Sabbath. We affirm that Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, is the Lord's day. We deny that Sunday is the new Christian Sabbath. We believe that Sunday has not replaced Saturday as the Sabbath. Rather, Sunday, the day that Christ rose from the dead, is the Lord's day. The view that Sunday is the new Christian Sabbath does not rest on any explicit text in the New Testament. Here's what they say. All Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament, some numerous times except the Fourth Commandment. In Acts 15, which we just read, or talked about, when the Jerusalem Council decided what would be required of Gentile believers in the church, they did not require them to observe the Sabbath. The apostles never commanded anyone to observe the Sabbath. They never chastened anyone for failing to observe the Sabbath. They never warned believers about Sabbath violations. And they never encouraged believers to hold to the Sabbath. Dude, it's not there. Yeah, but they meant to. (laughs) As a result of this, we see the Sabbath command as part of the superseded Mosaic Covenant and the Lord's Day is a different type of day, a day of assembly and worship. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Do you understand that? 
It's like being married to the law, and the sign you had to wear is a big sign on the top of your head. I love the law. And then being under the new covenant and saying, do we have to wear that sign? Yeah, love the law. We can love the law. I'm married to the law. No, you don't wear the sign. Okay. The Mosaic covenant symbol was circumcision for, its, for the progenity and the belief in the covenant. But the covenant community symbol, the ring they wore to show that they were married to the law, was the Sabbath. You need to take that off. The Mosaic Covenant with the Sabbath as its covenant sign are no longer applicable now that the new covenant of Jesus Christ has come. The early roots of Christians worshiping on Sunday as the Lord's Day are observed in Scripture and verified by the universal practice of churches in the second century. Secondly, we affirm that the Christian faithfully keeps the Sabbath today by spiritually resting in Christ, letting Him bear our heavy burdens, trusting Him for salvation, and committing our lives to Him in service then remaining faithful in lifelong loyalty to him rather than committing apostasy. Stay faithful to your new husband. We deny the Christian faithfully keeps the Sabbath today by adhering to Old Testament regulations governing Sabbath observances. Paul says in Colossians, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Can you eat anything? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all the glory of God. Paul says you are free to eat anything but not everything is profitable. Ding-dongs are not profitable. I mean, they're awesome. I'm allergic to wheat and dairy, but I'll tell you, if I ran out of here today and got, my, got the thing that was going to make me die, I'd get a box of Enemans Donuts and leave the planet. All right? So, but not everything's profitable, but Paul says all things are lawful. Every food, if accepted with thanksgiving and prayer, and gratefulness to God is acceptable to God. There are no Christian foods. There are no anti-Christian foods. All right, back to this. Do not let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. They are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So here's what our friends at that church that I've never been to say at the at top of page 13. This shows that the Sabbath points to Christ and is fulfilled in Him. The word for shadow in Greek that Paul used to describe the Sabbath is the same term the author of Hebrews used to describe Old Testament sacrifices. The sacrifices were a type or a picture or a shadow fulfilled in Christ and the Sabbath was a type and shadow fulfilled in Christ. You know, the book of Hebrews says that Christ is our Sabbath. Find your Sabbath rest in Him. The writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us, just like Paul says you're not married to the law, Hebrews is telling us you're not married to the obligations of that old covenant system. You're now in this. The rest that you sought on a daily basis can be found in Christ eternally. It's just like the woman at the well. Uh, she's thirsty. You know, Give me this water to drink and everything. If you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. You might get rested on a Saturday Sabbath, but you will not ever have the rest you'll have in Christ eternally. That's that's point. Okay. We do not believe that the Sabbath has no significance for Christians in the New Covenant. It was a shadow of the substance that is found in Christ. In the book of Hebrews, it is shown that Old Covenant Sabbath rest points forward to the end time rest Christians will enjoy in heaven. In Hebrews 4, Christians are exhorted to enter into the Sabbath rest provided by Christ. We believe this is done by trusting Christ as one who fulfilled the law in our place, giving to Him our heavy burdens, and following Him as our Lord as opposed to sin as our Lord. And finally, we affirm that a member of Flint Reformed Baptist Church ought to prioritize attending services on the Lord's Day in obedience to Hebrews chapter 10 under the New Covenant, verse 25. What does that say? says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but as the Lord, as the day of the Lord appears. Okay, you got it. In order to follow the church covenant and out of love for God and their fellow believers. Now, I wouldn't have worded it exactly that way, what the point would be. Oh, we deny that obedience to the fourth commandment is the proper basis to exhort people to attend Sunday services. Should be here on the Lord's Sabbath. Bring a heifer. Because the New Testament is very clear. Paul says, if you decide to put yourself under the law, 
You can't just do one of them. It's all of them or nothing. Because it's a basis, it's a system of a covenant. It's a marriage. It's not little pieces of it. You're either married to the law or you're married to Christ. To say, yeah, but I want that part. It's not, it's not the same thing. All right. The elders strongly believe in the importance of attending corporate worship services on the Lord's Day. However, the basis by which we exhort members is not Sabbath keeping since the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. I don't have time to read the rest. Obviously, it's there. Uh, this is our setup for next week to look at what in the world is going wrong in me and why is this happening? And Paul's points on that of why do I do these things? Because we need to understand our relationship to the law internally and our relationship to the Spirit. Hey, love you guys. Let me pray for you.